story is the story of Moses' children. Uh, he's been rescued from the, the river Nile where he was going to drown. He's now grown up. He, he tried to rescue one of his brother Israelites who was being beaten up by an Egyptian. Um, but it turned out badly and he's had to flee. So he's now uh, a grown up. He's married. He's had a son. And he's looking after his father-in-law's flocks out in a land called Midian, which is just next to Israel. So uh, let's hear the word of the Lord. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Just turn over uh, the page. We'll stop Exodus 3 there. Uh, two short readings from John's Gospel uh, to go with them. John 8, verses 56 to 59. John 8, 56 to 59. Uh, this is Jesus talking uh, with some uh, of his Jewish countrymen uh, who are... A skeptic about his claims. So Jesus says this, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And later, John 18, verses 3 to 6, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as they come to arrest Jesus. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. 
Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Uh, let's pray before we come to God's word. I'm going to suggest we stand as we pray, get some blood into the legs. I know it's difficult not to be able to sing and not be able to do responsive things. So, um, yeah, let's come forward in prayer as we stand. Uh, Lord God, uh, you are the great I am. You are the God who speaks, the God who came uh, down, uh, who possessed that burning bush and spoke to Moses. Uh, and just as Moses said, here I am to you, we say, here we are before you this morning, Lord God. Speak to us, we pray. Although uh, our unbelieving, sinful hearts fear to draw near, you have invited us to you in Christ. And so we pray in your mercy again, would you open our eyes, son of David, have mercy and allow us to see. Bless us, we pray through your word. Amen. There we go. Do you take your seats? One of the things they teach you uh, when you go to Bible college or when you read endless preaching books is you've got to have a hook. If you want to preach, you've got to have a hook that gets people interested in the first kind of minute or two. So let me start with a simple one. Uh, What is it you most need at the moment? If you can have anything, what is it you most need at the moment? Just take a second to think about it. If I could just have what? Then life, life would be okay health it might be a job if i just could get a little bit more money if i could just pass those exams if i could just get a boyfriend a girlfriend a husband a wife what is it the the, the place we're at in the story of exodus we have a people with huge needs remember that the people of god are in slavery and a cruel slavery they're being beaten and thrashed to within an inch of their lives and this has lasted hundreds of years I we're told that the whole time they're in, in Egypt, it ends up being 400 years, and most of that is slavery. Exodus introduces us to a very needy people. And yet, as we've seen over the last few weeks, heaven seems to be silent. There is very little mention of God's name in chapters 1 and 2, and he doesn't seem to be doing much. But although heaven is silent, heaven is not deaf. God has been hearing And chapter two ended with a comfort that God heard the groans, the cries of his people. God saw their suffering and God knew. And so here in Exodus three, for the first time, God comes onto the scene. It's like the moment in the movie when the hero walks on stage. The first time James Bond gets out of the car, the first time Iron Man appears. There's been lots of scene setting, but here he is. And this morning's passage introduces us to just who that God is. And he introduces himself in a strange way. Uh, In many ways, the whole book of Exodus, it might be worth saying, is all about this question, who is God? Uh, His people seem to have forgotten during this 400 years stay in Egypt. And so he wants them to know who he is. Now, they know his name. They know he's the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. but, But they've forgotten what he's really like. What does it mean to follow this God, to believe in this God? Again, that, that's perhaps closer to home for us. Most of us in this room, I suspect, if someone said, well, what is God like, would, would be able to answer. Well, he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He came to earth. Jesus, Son of God, came to earth to die for our sins. He's a God of love and mercy. We, we know lots of things to say. 
And yet we can, we can sort of forget, can't we? We know, but we don't know. We believe, but we don't believe. Like the man, you know, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Exodus is all about who God is. Time and time again, God will say something like, I will make myself known by, I will show them who I am by. And here's the first example, the first case of God coming to introduce himself. What would you expect uh, God to do or say? I'm the God of everlasting love. I am the God of unfathomable mercy. I am the God of extravagant grace. That's none of the things he goes for. He introduces himself, particularly in the burning bush, as the God who has no needs. The God who has no needs. How long would it take you to get there in your description of God? What is God like? Well, he is someone who has no needs. Uh, The God who needs nothing. We're going to focus on the burning bush really this morning uh, and think a little about the the God of Exodus 3. Next week, we're going to come back to the same passage uh, and see sort of more what's going on in the story in the chapter. But zooming in on the burning bush, this God who needs nothing. Uh, we see it in two ways. We see it in the flame and the name. Okay, the flame and the name. Easy to remember. So let's look, first of all, at the flame. It's a classic story, isn't it? We all know about Noah and his ark, David and Goliath, Daniel uh, and the lion's den, and Moses in the burning bush. Uh, except this thing about it is, it's not a burning bush, is it? I look carefully down. Uh, with me at verse 2. Moses is out of the wilderness. He's looking after the sheep, minding his own business. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. Now, a bush on fire is not very interesting, particularly in the Sinai Desert. Okay? Fires happen in deserts. That's... The whole point of this bush is that although it's burning, although the, the, the flame is in the bush, it's not burning. It's not being consumed. It is a non-burning bush if you like. Now the fire, children, is meant to represent God to us. Okay, so if you've got the bush and the fire, the fire is God. Uh, We know that because fire often symbolizes God in the Bible. Uh, In Genesis, when God came to Abraham, uh, he came in a fiery pot, a kind of fiery burning sort of barbecue pit thing. Uh, We know later on in Exodus, as he leads God's people, uh, sorry, as he leads his people rather through the desert, God comes as a fiery pillar. God often comes as fire. And we see it in terms of uh, our passage this morning uh, by the voice. Uh, just note, by the way, uh, almost a bit of a side point, but you see in verse 2, who is it that speaks in verse 2 out of the flame? Well, in verse 2, it's the angel of the Lord. But as we read on, <laughs> what happens next? Well, verse 4, when the Lord saw that he, Moses, turned aside, God called to him out of the bush. Uh, or verse 7, then the Lord said. So it is God who's speaking for the bush, but it's also the angel of the Lord that is speaking for the bush. This angel, angel is just another word for messenger. Uh, this messenger seems to both be distinct from God, but also God. And that that makes perhaps little sense until, of course, we come to the New Testament. We read in John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How could something be with God and God at the same time? 
Well, because this is the God who is triune, three in one. What is going on here, I think, is that this angel or the messenger of the Lord is it's, it's the, the second person of the Trinity who eventually will come to earth and take the name Jesus. It is God the Son speaking to Moses. But the flame, which is what we're focusing on, the flame is not reliant on the bush. It burns, but it doesn't need the wood in order to do so. What's this telling us about God? It's telling us that he has life in himself. He is not reliant on anyone or anything else. Now, normally, if you, if you burn something, you need, you need the, the flame, don't you? And you need the fuel. Okay, so do you want to borrow along some matches? I often do visual aids, do I? Here we go. It's a bit of a long shot. Um, now, when I write my match, it only burns, doesn't it? Okay, and it burns children as long as there's wood on the matchstick. And when the wood runs out, the flame will run out. Or if something stronger comes along, like my breath, <laughs> um, to overpower the flames, well, well, that can get rid of the flame too. The flame is dependent on fuel, on something else, and it's dependent on nothing stronger coming along and overcoming it. We are dependent people, aren't we? Okay, you rely on fuel, don't you? Uh, this morning, you fueled yourself up with Rice Krispies or, or Weedabix or coffee or pancakes or donuts or whatever it was you had for breakfast. Uh, even now, since you've arrived in the building, you've been fueling yourself. Air comes in. You've got to breathe in the air. You're dependent on air. No air, no life. God is not like that. Uh, the flame is meant to show us that the God is com- has life in himself. He is completely independent of his creation. He needs nothing. It's the flame. It's also there in the name. Now, we're going to come back to the name in much more detail next week. But look down with me at verse 13. Uh, Moses asked this question of God. Look, if I'm going to go and rescue uh, the Israelites, uh, and, and they say, well, what God are you coming to rescue us for? Who is it that sent you? What shall I say to them? Verse 14. God said to Moses... I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. You want to know my name? I am, says God. I was going to say a bit more, but we're going to look at it next week. But, but, but do you see that the, that the reason that God calls himself I am is because he's saying there is nothing more fundamental than me. I don't rely on anything. I don't need anything. I just am. I just exist. I am existence. It's a strange name. But both the flame and the name are telling us God has no needs. We worship a God who needs nothing. That means a couple of things. It means he doesn't need any help with his plans. Again, we need help all the time, don't we? If, if you're to build a house, I'm, I've never built a proper house. I have built a small blue Wendy house about this big in lockdown number one. And in order for that to happen, I needed someone to, to send me the, the, the wood, okay, the, the packaging. I needed George, my wife, to help me kind of hold the things up as we put it together. We, we need help. And we can be stopped in our plans. There are lots of things you'd like to do in your life, but you can't do them. You like, I walked past some lovely houses the other day. I thought, oh, it'd be nice living in one of those. Can't do it. Haven't got the money. There's all sorts of plans 
We might like to get married, but I just can't find the right guy or girl. I'd like to get promoted, but no one's allowing me. Whatever it is, all sorts of our plans can be stopped by others. But nothing can stop God, and he's not reliant on anyone else. Now, that's incredibly good news for the Israelites. Remember, they're in slavery. They are not going to be able to chip in to help with their salvation, to help with their rescue. Their needs are overwhelming, and they have nothing to bring to God. And it seems like those who are opposed to them, Pharaoh, his slave masters, that the world empire of the time, are totally dominant. And so to be able to come to a God who needs nothing is hugely good news for them. Think back to those needs, the needs that you have. God needs no help in order to meet those needs. Now, of course, some of the things we think we need aren't actually good for us because we're corrupt and sometimes we blur the line between what we want and what we need. But even at our best, when we say that we need things that we know are right, I I know what I really need is to love Jesus more. I need to be more passionate in evangelism. I I need to be more prayerful. I need to be kind to my wife and children. I need to conquer this sin, the, the good needs that we have. God doesn't need your help in order to match and meet those needs. The person you want to see come to faith, I can think of people, family, that I re- you really want to come to faith. And you think it's just desperate, it's never gonna happen. And you start looking at yourself and think, why can't I do it? Why? He doesn't need you, that's good news. And the point is not to be passive and just go, oh, well, I'll just not bother, I'll just sleep until I die and then hopefully God will sort everything out. No, that's not the idea at all. The point is rather the power is in him, not in you. So it's not that we don't battle sin. It's not we don't pray and and, and try to share the gospel. It's just that the power for it all doesn't need to be found in you one iota, one jot. You don't need to chip in one bit. Some of these students are about to go into the probably the the sort of the least powerful looking events week in the history of the CUs. Never before has it been done in the middle of a pandemic, I should think. Never before, certainly, has it been done online. That's okay. It doesn't need you nothing prevents him achieving his goals so the fact that he needs nothing means he doesn't need help with his plans it also means he doesn't need well he doesn't need help to be happy you and I are large on other people to be happy aren't we uh, things change our, our moods you come downstairs in the morning you, you smell pancakes okay, the smell comes from outside you and you are happy and then you walk into the kitchen and the kids are pulling each other by the pigtails and you are cross this is all hypothetical. Um, uh, the, the, the radio comes on and you hear the news about the latest COVID figures and you're worried uh, or anxious. Uh, your friend texts you a picture of their, uh, your new baby and you are uh, filled with joy. Different things come at us from outside us. Through our, you know, our eyes, our ears. And they change our moods. We swing up and down. Like roller coasters are, are emotional stability is God like that well no his mood if I can use that word his emotional state to put it crudely is not based on what's going on down here in the world imagine the chaos if it was I mean we're limited to one place at one time aren't we you know, we can listen to one thing on the news or look at one thing at a time and even our emotions go up and down at that imagine God who can see and knows all things would it be a basket case wouldn't he it's not the case, is it, that God looks down 
and sees someone robbing a bank and is sad and then sees John Piper preaching and is happy Uh, and then sees two kids fighting and is cross and then sees some nuns and he's happy again as if he's sort of gone this kind of up and down and up and no, no, no. God's, he's not dependent on us. This is hugely important. He's not dependent on us or the world for his happiness. That's why in 1 Timothy, twice actually in 1 Timothy, Paul calls God the blessed God. He even talks about the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That blessed is, is just a, it's really worth being happy. But it's replied to God at least. So yes, we use words, but at times we say that God is angry. But when we say God is angry, what are we saying? Well, we're using human language to describe what happens when unrepentant, sinful people come to God. It's not God that God was, was happy and he suddenly sees a sinner in his, his cross. No, he is always burningly bright, burningly pure, burningly happy. And so if a sinner comes towards that, well, it's going to seem like anger to them. Think of, it, think of God like the sun in one sense, that the sun remains burning and pure and hot. But the effects of the sun on us change. At one time, it kind of gives you a nice tan and warms you up after a, a cold night camping. Another time, it can be terrifying. It can burn up a satellite. Well, it's not that the sun's changed. It's how we've approached the sun that has changed. There's deep mysteries here. And please don't hear this as, as implying in any ways God is some sort of rock, sort of inert, doesn't care, doesn't... Not the whole passage is going to be about how he does care for his people. But he's not dependent on us. And the fact that God doesn't need you is what makes his love for you so amazing. Okay, I'm going to come back to this. This is so important. The fact that God doesn't need you is what makes his love for you so amazing. For now, okay, for now, where we are, can you just see that, that this burning bush that shows us a God who is independent, who is happy in himself, who can do everything he wants, who is not reliant on us, shows us that, that somewhere in the universe, as it were, it is possible, it is possible to meet and to know that this God who has life in himself, joy in himself. But there's a problem, isn't there? See the problem? The problem comes in this, in this encounter between Moses and God. And the problem is this. The problem is that God draws near to us. That's the problem. God draws near. Okay, he's a God who has no needs, but he also is a God who draws near. So, well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Okay, you've got this really happy God. You know, if, if you had a, perhaps you've got a friend who, you know, you're always happy when that friend comes to stay. I think my best mate. I'm just always happy when the, my mate Tim comes to stay or I go and see him. We've been friends all our lives since we were babies in a cot together. Okay, I just love seeing him. It just makes me happy. You just think about it. it. makes me happy. So, so what about when we meet this God who is always happy, always holy, always, so it's good when we come to him, when he draws near. And at first sight, it seems, doesn't it? Verse four, God calls to Moses. Moses, Moses. It seems that God wants to be near Moses. And after all, he is in the bush. The bush symbolizes, I think, God's people. At the very least, it symbolizes creation. God, this independent God who needs nothing, it isn't floating above the bush or standing next to the bush. He could have just not bother with the bush at all, for that matter. No, he's wanting to show that although he is independent, although he needs nothing, he is down here with his people, not distant and uncaring. 
And yet at the same time, as we read the passage, there are problems, aren't there? What does God say? Verse 5. Having said Moses, Moses, he then says, do not come near. Don't get too close to this burningly pure God. Verse 5 again. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place you're standing on is holy ground. Seems strange. Why, why take your sandals off? A bit difficult to know. I think the idea is this, that, that right from Genesis, it's the only book of the Bible that's, that's happened so far, right from Genesis, uh, we're told that after the fall, uh, the ground is going to be cursed. Uh, and so Moses, with his sandals on, he's been walking on this cursed ground, isn't to come on the holy ground of God's presence, bringing the, the dust of a fallen creation with him. It's a symbolic gesture, uh, as it were. It's why, uh, as far as we can work out, the priests didn't wear shoes or sandals in the, the temple or the tabernacle as they served. It's a picture again of God being holy and us not being, and the two not being able to come together, like getting too close to a bonfire. And Moses understands this, doesn't he? Verse 6, uh, when God announces that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses hides his face for he's afraid to look at God. That's Moses. Moses is afraid to look at God. Is, is there anyone in the, in the Old Testament higher up the rankings than Moses? He's arguably the greatest character in the Old Testament. He's at the very least on the podium, isn't he, with, with Abraham and David. Okay, gold, silver, bronze, you put them in whatever order you like. But he's one of the, the big three. And in books like Hebrews in the New Testament, he is the one chosen to be the, kind of, the person who best pictures Jesus. And yet even Moses can't get to God. He can't get to this God who is joy and happiness and purity. It is the problem of a God who draws near, a burningly pure God who draws near. But we want to go, but we we can't get too close. And we so underestimate this, don't we? That's why if the gospel seems kind of small thing, it doesn't really move your heart much. It's likely that part of the problem is you are not seeing how burningly pure and holy God is and how filthy and dirty you are by comparison. It seems a small thing to walk into God's presence, but it is no small thing to come into the presence of God. It is a terrifying thing that makes Moses hide his face. In the book of Isaiah, you get these seraphim, these strange creatures with six wings who don't sin. They are mighty angelic beings. And even they, with no sin, have to shield their eyes in God's presence as they sing, holy, holy, holy. How do we think we just walk in? I'm not that bad. No. We cannot come to him. He's everything we need. He has everything we need. Uh, he is the great I am, but he's out of reach. So imagine a castle, and you, you, you've been on a long journey, and everything you need is in that castle. There's a banquet waiting for you, and wine, and food, and cushions to relax on, music playing, friends uh, to enjoy their company. Rest is waiting for you. Everything you need is there, but the drawbridge is pulled up. You cannot get in. The great I am is out of reach. Until... There's two passages in John. Again, for now, we don't need to look too much at the context and what's going on. What does Jesus call himself? 
first one, they have an argument about uh, where Jesus says, oh, he, Abraham was pleased to see me. And, and the Jews say, look, Abraham lived 2,000 years ago. What are you on about? You're not even 50. What does Jesus say? Not before Abraham was, I was, but before Abraham was, I am. He takes God's name on his lips. He's alluding back to this burning bush. I am. I am Yahweh. I am the one in the burning bush. I am God. The Jews understand that, by the way. They understand he hasn't just made a grammatical mistake. Not, not, not I am Jesus, you're trying to say I was. No, 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 they get it. That's why they pick up stones, verse 59. They want to stone him for blasphemy, for breaking that third commandment we looked at earlier. Or when they come to arrest Jesus. This one's slightly subtle. I had Hannah put it in bold, just so it jumps out more. And the, the guards say, look, we've come to arrest Jesus. Jesus. Where is he? And Jesus says to him, says to them, sorry, verse 5, I am. Again, there's no word he in the, the Greek. I don't want to put a put there. Just I am. That's what he says. And to make it really clear to us, verse six, when Jesus said to them, "I am," they draw back and fall to the ground. It's like Moses again. They can't get near. Why, why did the soldiers fall back when Jesus says, "I am"? It's not because he's big and strong and wielding a sword. It's because the great Yahweh, the great I am, has just pronounced his name, and they are driven back. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the great I am. So when you look at Exodus 3, where is he? Just for a second, think about it. If if you're trying to teach a Bible study, we'll show you this one. Where is he in Exodus 3? The passage we just read, the burning bush. Where is Jesus? We easy say, it's easy. He's in the bush. Done it already. You've said it earlier in the sermon. You're repeating yourself. Go back and read more of those preaching books. Well, yes, that's right. He is. But, or rather, and. Yes, he is Yahweh in the bush, the great I am. But he is also foreshadowed in Moses. Because Jesus is God and man. He is both God, almighty, burningly pure. But also he has come down to become one of us. Taken on flesh, become a human being. And he alone became a pure human being, a sinless human being. He alone would be able to walk into the fire. For him, to him, his heavenly father wouldn't need to say, stay away, take off your sandals, do not come near. No, he can, even as a man, draw near. No fear. Holiness is no threat to him. He has the right to stand on God's holy hill to use the language of Psalm 15, because there is no deceit in him. He is pure. He alone would have a warm welcome. And of course, Jesus does walk in to the fires of God's burning holiness. He does approach God, but what does he do so, or how does he do so? He does so carrying yours and my sin. And because of that, when Jesus comes to God on the cross, bearing our sin, approaching God in all his mighty holiness, he is burnt. He is consumed. He does face the raging, terrifying fires of God's holiness for you, bearing your sin. He does so as our representative, our our saviour, our mediator. He is both Yahweh in the push, but also Moses leading his people to a far greater rescue. Look as we close. What's what's all this got to do with the, the God who has no needs? What, what is 
God gained by saving you? Ask yourself that question. What has God gained by saving you? He has gained nothing. What does God need from you? Nothing. What can you bring to God that he doesn't have already? Nothing. What will God lack if you don't come to him? Nothing. He doesn't need anything. So what? why do we care? Is this... Well, what this does, as I said earlier, is grounds his immense love for us. He is not acting for his own good, but for your good. The benefit is all to you, not to him. I said, what about this? It's all for his glory, isn't it? We learned that in our, our first question about catechism. What is the chief end of man to glorify God? All the glory goes to God. Yes, all the glory goes to him, but the gain is all yours. The gain is all yours and ours. As the Nicene Creed puts it, for us men and our salvation, for us and our salvation, he came down. So think of those Israelites. Perhaps you can sort of fit yourself into one of these Israelites' categories. A suspicious Israelite who doesn't want to trust Moses as his saviour. Who is this God that's come to rescue? Well, he is a God whose love you can trust because he's not out to exploit you or get anything for you from you. Sorry. He's not another pharaoh. God, when he comes to rescue you, he's not out to take from you, but to give to you. His love, the only love you'll ever know, but is entirely focused on your benefit. Not that of the one doing the loving. Think of an Israel at Sinai, okay, when they get given God's law, hear all these rules. Okay, perhaps there are times, you know, times you, you read things in the Bible and you think, you know, God is calling me to do something that is painful or difficult. I need to end a relationship that, that is just going to be ungodly. I may make hard decisions that will make me less wealthy or whatever it may be. When God calls you to obedience, gives you his, his rules, his laws, again, it's not for his benefit. He doesn't need a subservient people because it will make him look good with the other gods or something. No, when he tells us how to live, that is for our good too. Costly obedience may feel costly to us, but it is a blessing. That means too, by the way, if you're sleepy at the moment, if, um, frankly, you're just cruising along thinking, I've got this. Prayer life is non-existent. Family worship non-existent, more or less. But then you're falling into the mistake of thinking you are okay without God and that your way of life, as opposed to his, is a way of blessing. No, he knows how to live a blessed life and he's told you. You can wander from that path either by just deliberate disobedience or just by sort of falling off to sleep. Or finally, if you're a... You know, and he's right in slavery, as it were, struggling, suffering. You see, all that you need is in, in Jesus. God, who needs nothing, has become man, combined God and man in one person, and come to us. So you don't need to find resources in yourself to overcome your anxiety, to overcome your sin, to overcome your struggles, your suffering, your depression, your boredom, whatever it is. You won't find those resources in yourself, frankly, but you will find them in Jesus. He has brought the fire. That's why at Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, he baptises us with the Holy Spirit and fire comes 
upon God's people. Now, when you became a Christian, you didn't get a bit of fire on your head, did you, children? But, but the early church, when the Holy Spirit was first poured out, fire came. There's God again. But this time, he can dwell in us and among us. The Holy Spirit, God himself, can come and live in us. Jesus' Spirit. And that's where the resources are, not in us, but in him. And again, not for his gain, but for ours. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will not thirst. I'm the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. Everything you need is in Jesus. So as you stumble into Monday morning, and the world seems to come crashing down, don't look for inner strength or inner peace. Don't look for techniques or strategies. Go to Jesus. Help me. You are the great I am. And you have come down for us and for our salvation. I need your salvation. Open my eyes. Strengthen my legs. Unstop my ears. Soften my heart. I have nothing. I need everything. But you have everything and you have poured it out for me. The castle drawbridge is down. Jesus has come out to bring you in. All the treasures of heaven are yours in him. Come to him. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we, we've, we've trod on, on holy ground like Moses today uh, as we turn the, the pages of Exodus and come uh, to this incredible description. Uh, we pray that all that is good that we've heard this morning will stay with us, feed us and strengthen us. All that is bad might it fall away. We pray so much that we would be a people who rely on you who don't look for resources in ourselves. And we praise you that you have made the riches of heaven available to us in Christ. Bless us in him. Enable us to feed. Open our mouths and fill them with good things, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.